you ever gone online and saw those uh, blog posts or pictures where they show pictures of people who look like their dogs? Those are pretty funny. We've got some of those up here. Uh, you know, my favorite up there is seeing Peyton Manning. And I'm like, that one is so uh, perfect. Uh, you can really have some fun. Uh, I, I may have gone down a rabbit trail looking at these this, this week. Uh, it's pretty fun. I, I will say for me, I don't necessarily look like my dog. This is my dog, Piper. And uh, we don't necessarily look alike, but Piper and I do have a couple things in common. See, one of, the, one of my favorite things to do with Piper is I'll tell her to sit and I'll tell her to stay. And then I take a treat and I put it on the ground like five feet from her. And it is so funny watching her. Because she just, she's so anxious and so excited. She has such a hard time waiting. And so she starts drooling. And she drools, and underneath her, it looks like she peed. There's just a puddle of drool right there. And she's there, and she's just nervous, and she's watching you, and she's just ready to burst on the inside. Now, I don't drool like Piper does. But I have a hard time waiting just like my dog. In fact, my kids have really gotten into fishing, and they keep going fishing all summer long, and, and, and they're good at it. And, and I love them fishing, and I always love the idea of fishing. Uh, here's the thing. I love to fish because I love to cast it out and see how far I can throw it in. Uh, I love to, to reel the fish in because that's exciting, but I hate to wait. That's like the worst. You throw it out, and you're just waiting. Like, what are you supposed to do now? So I'm not a good fisherman because I just, I hate to wait. I'm like, can't this hurry up? Can we acknowledge, how many of you struggle with waiting? Waiting sometimes is the absolute worst. I mean, fortunately, most of us don't drool, but we could also acknowledge waiting is, is a difficult thing. In fact, I was thinking about this, uh, about one of the worst times I had to wait. Several, several years ago, my daughter broke her arm, and it was one of those breaks where it was like, the arm was bent, and you're like, something is majorly wrong. So we go to the doctor's office, and they set it, and they're like, yeah, she's going to have to have surgery to get a couple pins put in uh, her bones in her, in her arm. And I'm like, all right, here we go. The, the surgery was scheduled for like a, a late afternoon, and so we go, we're back with her. They, you know, get her on all the drugs and stuff and, and take her back. And my wife and I, Samantha, we go to the waiting room, and, and we're waiting. Now, the doctor was like, yeah, it might be like an hour or maybe a little bit longer. And so we're waiting in the waiting room, and, and it's, you know, getting into evening, and, and uh, an hour goes by, and then an hour and 15 minutes, and then an hour and 17 minutes, and, uh, and it keeps to an hour and 30, uh, an hour and 30 in. The lady that's, that's working in the, in the waiting room, she's like, uh, it's the end of my day. I, I, I'm done. I'm going home. So you guys are here on your own. And she's like, here's that red phone. If like you can picture like the president has that red phone. We're going to let the red phone be out. And if you need to get a hold of somebody, this will ring to somewhere, someplace, and you can talk to whoever you need to do to. And we're like, so you're just leaving us? She left. And so here we are in this waiting room. We're waiting. We're not hearing anything. It gets to be two hours, and it goes even a little bit longer. There's nobody else in this waiting room, just us. It's kind of eerie to be in the waiting room at the hospital all by yourselves. We get two and a half hours in, and I'll tell you what, I'm going crazy. Because you start having these thoughts that run through your mind. Is everything okay? Is Ava okay? Was there a problem? Did the doctor stop for dinner? Like, did he decide to run to, to Taco Bell in the middle of the surgery? Like, what is going on? Finally, just, just shy of three hours, the doctor finally comes in, 
And he's like, hey, good news. Everything was a success. We had to kind of maneuver some of those pins to get them in her arm. But, but is that true? When we're in that time of waiting, it's funny how our brain begins to think through different things. Like maybe, like maybe we got forgotten. How long? What's going on? And what about those thoughts in our own personal lives? I mean, all of us at some point have been through a hardship. We've been through a difficult thing. We've been through some sort of suffering. And don't we ask those same questions? How long? How long, God? God, I'm miserable. I'm not sure I can keep it together, God. Please, God, how long are we going to do this? Can't you come bring this to an end? We're suffering. We're thinking, God, God, have you forgotten about me? Like, I'm, I'm still here. I'm, I'm still in the middle of this thing. God, have you forgotten about me? Is that why I'm still suffering like this? I begin to wonder, maybe God is no longer present. God, where are you? God, don't you care? It's not an uncommon thing for us to wrestle through some of these questions that run through our mind. In fact, in the, in the Psalms, in the book of Psalms, 13 times the psalmist writes and asks, How long, God? How long is this going to go on? The past couple of months, we've been in a sermon series that we're calling The Story, where we're trying to look and see how, how every, every character in the Bible, every, every page, every event, every command, everything in the Bible is pointing to one story, and it's not a story about us. It's a story all about Jesus and what he's accomplished for us on the cross. And it's been remarkable to kind of see the Old Testament, to see how all the Old Testament stories, they kind of, they fit together. They're not just random stories that, you know, uh, someone decided to put together into the Bible. They're, they're one story. And we saw where, where God set his favor on a man by the name of Abraham. And God made these tremendous promises to Abraham and said, Abraham, listen, your ancestors are going to become a great nation. They're going to become a great nation. It's going to be great. Abraham, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give your people a land, a place to call home. It's going to be the promised land. It's going to be your inheritance. And he said, Abraham, through your ancestors, all the families of the world will be blessed. God made this promise to Abraham. And simply, the only thing he asked in return is that he would have his faith and trust in God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what's amazing is as we've kind of been in this series, like I'm not sure if you noticed how God has accomplished every one of those promises. God has done what he said he was going to do. In fact, in the book of Joshua chapter 23, uh, this is what Joshua says. He says, you know with all your heart and soul that none of the promises that God has made to you have failed. Every single one of them have been fulfilled. In fact, we've looked and said, here's the nation of Israel. They've got these three pillars that help to identify them. Number one, they had the, the monarchy. They had, they had the king. That was unique and special to them. Number two, they had the land, the land that God had given them. Number three, they had the temple. These are the three pillars that was so special to make them a unique nation as the nation of Israel. Well, here's God being incredibly faithful and, and, and gracious to them. And how do the people respond? 
Well, we saw in the last couple of weeks, they have continued to abandon the Lord. They have not remained faithful to him. They've trusted in other things instead of trusting in God. In fact, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, uh, this is Jeremiah's assessment of the people. He says, uh, my people have committed two evils. They have abandoned me, the foundation of living waters, and they've dug for themselves cisterns for themselves that cannot hold water. Instead of trusting in God, who is the foundation of living water, instead of trusting God, they built these cisterns to try and say, we're going to find water apart from God. And those cisterns could never actually accomplish what they set out to, to do. And so this is where the prophet Jeremiah comes in. The prophet Jeremiah we saw last week came in and he warned the people of God. He said, listen, God's patience is running thin. You've got to return to the Lord. You've got to repent and trust in him alone Otherwise, the Lord's discipline, the Lord's punishment will become a reality. And that's kind of where we are today, is the Lord's punishment has become a reality. 2 Kings chapter 25, you don't have to turn there, but 2 Kings 25 tells us how God's punishment played out. Nebuchadnezzar, uh, that's a fun name to say, Nebuchadnezzar, you can just say that a bunch of times. He was a king of Babylon, and he brought an army against Jerusalem. And the way he did this is he set up camp all around the city. And so essentially he's trying to cut off the city from all outside help. Blocks any food from coming in. And after 18 months, the people of Jerusalem, they're starving. They're like, we can't do this anymore. And so they open a gate. Some of the people flee. The king of Jerusalem flees. And sure enough, he is captured by the Babylonians. The Babylonians slaughter his sons right before him, and then they take the king and they blind him. And they take him away 500 miles to the city of Babylon. They've lost their king. Again, what was the three pillars? It was the king, the land, and the temple. They've lost their king. But 2 Kings 25 continues in verse 8, says the people, the Babylonians, they entered the city. They burned the temple. They've lost the temple. Then they burned the king's palace and all the houses of Jerusalem. They tore down the walls that protected the city, and they deported the rest of the people that remained in the city. And then they took out all the precious things out of the temple, and they melted them down for scrap metal. Here in one chapter, God's discipline comes on the people. And the Babylonians take the three things that made them unique, that gave them confidence. They took their king, they took their land, and they destroyed the temple. And this is the Lord's discipline to his people, that they are now exiles in a foreign land 500 miles away. But I wanted to think about this idea of being an exile. You ever, you ever felt like you were in exile? You ever felt like, man, I'm just in exile? Uh, exile, the way I would describe being exiled would be, uh, it relates to a, a loss of, of a structured, reliable Life, a structured, reliable world, a, a way of life that gave you meaning and gave you consistency. You have a loss of a framework that was treasured and trusted. If, if we were Will Smith here, we'd say our life got flipped, turned upside down, and everything that we trusted on is no longer the same. This might happen for us when things happen that are completely out of our control. Many of us can probably recognize that. Where things happen to us that are out of our control, we get, we get the medical diagnosis. Turns everything upside down. We have the death of a loved one that we loved and cherished, and it was unexpected. 
and it flips everything around. We start dealing with mental health struggles. We start dealing with things where this con- con- consistent structure world is just turned on its head on us, leaves us feeling like things are out of sorts and broken. Sometimes we feel like exile it can come when uh, maybe we realize we aren't the person uh, that we wanted to be. We aren't the person we expected to be. I mean, this happens where as parents, we have this picture, parents or spouse, we have this picture, I'm going to be this kind of a parent. I'm going to be this type of a spouse. I'm going to be the best ever. But then you live a little bit of life, and maybe you go through some stuff, and you look and you're like, I'm not anything like the person I wanted to be. Or maybe, maybe, maybe you have this passion for God, and you're like, God, I'm going to be, I'm going to be the best Christian. I'm going to do all these things for you, God. You're going to be so thankful I'm on your team. And then you live life a little bit, and you're like, man, I, I wanted to be like a really good Christian, but I'm not quite where I thought I was going to be. You can recognize there's a little bit of exile in that. Where, where we wanted to be is not where we are. Where we wanted to be, what we wanted to be is not the reality that we are living in. Feeling exiled can also come just like the people of God. Some of us can recognize this, where maybe we have been disobedient to the Lord. We've lived life our own way. And now we find ourselves suffering through the consequences of our own sin. Again, Life is flipped upside down. The life that we thought we could bring security and trust and comfort is gone. And we lose control. And the question is, the question is, how do we respond? How do we respond when we feel like we are in exile? When we feel like we've lost control? When we feel like everything is happening and there's no say or rhyme or reason? I'll tell you, for me, when I'm in that season... Maybe you recognize these. Maybe one of the temptations is just to give up, right? When we start, we start going through something difficult, we're suffering, and clearly I begin to think, God, clearly you're so mad at me. God, you're so mad at me that you are, are, are judging me, and, and, and maybe you've forgotten about me. And so for me, I pout, I kick, I scream like a toddler, and then I just want to give up. God, you're no longer with me. I'm just going to give up. Maybe you've seen people in this world who become bitter, who become very cynical. In the world, there's a lot of people like that. People who have faced hardship and have given up become very bitter people. Maybe if you don't want to give up, maybe the second thing that sometimes I will do is I will cling to some sort of false hope. I'll cling to some sort of, hey, I'm suffering, and so I'm just going to cling to anything that makes me feel better. For the people of God, here in Jeremiah's day, this is what they did. Jeremiah 28. Again, the people are in exile. Jeremiah 28, there's a, there's a prophet that comes, and, and he tells the people exactly what they wanted to hear. He said, listen, people, don't worry. Don't worry. God's not really angry at you. It's not this big of a deal. This is going to be a very short exile. Don't even unpack your bags. You're going to be here such a short time, you're going to feel like you're just visiting. You're just passing through. And the prophet, this false prophet, tells the people, don't worry about it. Don't have anxiety about it. Listen, within two years, you're going to be back to uh, the, the land that God had given you, and everything's going to be just right. 
this prophet offers them not what they need to hear. He offers them what they want to hear. False security, false hope, false peace, false comfort. Listen, this is a context of where we read Jeremiah 29. And I will say Jeremiah 29 has probably the most popular verse in, in all of Scripture. BibleGateway.com, uh, one of the websites I use when I do sermon prep. Out of over 2 billion page views, this verse, Jeremiah 29, 11, is number one. It's a top verse that people search for. And Jeremiah 29 is written to a people in exile, a people suffering, people who have been listening to a false prophet, giving them false hope. And so here's Jeremiah coming in to speak to those people in exile. And here's three things that we're going to look at today. I want us to recognize maybe this is where you are today. Maybe you're in that season where you're like, yes, I feel like that. I feel like I'm suffering. I'm struggling. I recognize that feeling of being in exile. Maybe you're like, I'm not there today, but I've been there. And I tell you, if you're not there today, if you haven't been there, you can look to the future. It will come. So here's three things I think that Jeremiah would teach us about how we live when we are in exile. Number one, number one, we've got to know that God is in control. Look what he says in verse four. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles, and I want you to underline this and hear this and circle this, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile. See, maybe, maybe it's just me, but in, in, in moments of crisis for me, Man, I am so quick to think that somehow God has left me on my own. I am so quick to think, God, God, you've deserted me. You're not present. There's no way you could be a part of this. I mean, certainly none of us would choose to suffer. None of us would choose to go through a crisis. None of us would choose to be in exile. Yet look what he just said. To the exiles whom I have sent. God's not there throwing his hands up saying, I don't know, we'll see what happens. Life is not just by chance. It's not random. It's not a matter of, of, we'll see where the cards fall. No, Jeremiah just said that God was present with them. God is in control. God sent them into exile. God controlled the destiny of his people. This exile was by divine initiative. King Nebuchadnezzar, man, we, want, we always want to paint him as being a bad guy. But do we recognize King Nebuchadnezzar? Again, you can say that name as many times as you can. It's a fun one. King Nebuchadnezzar, he is simply an agent that God used to bring about his purposes for his people. I mean, this is the idea. This is the idea. If we understand this, there's such comfort in us knowing that God is in control. This is the idea of the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God means that God is Lord over all creation. God is sovereign. He's in control of all things. Uh, Isaiah 40, 45, it says this. Isaiah 45 says, I am the Lord God. There is no other. I form light, I create darkness, I make well-being, I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. 
And here's what he says. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does clay say to him who forms, what are you making? If we would grasp this idea, no matter where we are, God is with us and God is in control. Do you know how much comfort that is? To know that there's nothing in this life that we face, that God's not present with us, that God's not in control of. And if we recognize that, that changes how we see him, that changes how we cry out to him, that changes how we pray to him, because there's nothing that we face that his hand isn't stronger than. There's nothing that we face that's just by chance or by random, and God's like, I don't know what to do now. No, God is in control. To the exiles, Jeremiah says, I want you to know that God is in control. Whatever circumstances, whatever dislocation and, and, and changes, whatever's going on, it's not random, it's not chance. God is in control. Second thing that Jeremiah tells these exiles is to bloom where you are planted. Again, one of the things that happens when life throws us a curveball, when we're facing a hardship, when we're going through suffering, man, it's easy to drop out, right? Drop out of our faith, stop trying. This is easy for us to pout and become bitter. Poor me, look how bad of an experience. We play the victim card, right? We're all good at playing the victim. In fact, the people of Jeremiah's day, they're probably not much different than us. The temptation is there. Psalm 137 says, we sat beside the rivers of Babylon. We sat and we wept as we thought about Jerusalem. We put away our harps for our captors demanded a song from us. But how can we sing songs to the Lord in a pagan land? This is the people of God saying, we just want to drop out. We're in this foreign land. We're away from everything that brought us comfort. We want to sit by the river and cry and hang up our instruments. We're not going to do this anymore. They want to drop out. And while they're in that moment of being sad and depressed, they get this letter from Jeremiah. And here's what Jeremiah says. To all the exiles whom I've sent into exile, verse 5, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. And take wives for your sons and give your daughters to marriage that they may be your sons. And multiply there and do not decrease. The implication in this, Jeremiah is saying, this isn't just a short little stay. You're going to be here for a while. So make the most of it. Build a house. Plant a garden. You're going to be there for several seasons. Have 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 kids which tells me you're going to be there for generations. Have your kids have kids. You're going to be there for multiple generations. But then Jeremiah gives this new perspective, verse 7. He says, seek the welfare of the city that I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. See, in life, none of us ever get a perfect set of circumstances. Do you recognize that? None of us ever get a perfect set of circumstances. So you might be in a new place. You might be struggling with something that is hard. You might wish that life was a little bit different. Here's the thing. The people that don't just survive, but the people who thrive, people who make an impact for God, 
People that become heroes of the faith are people who realize that God is in control. Whatever situation they're in is not a surprise to God. And they find a way to be faithful, to seek the welfare of the people around them, to seek the welfare of the places that God has planted them. This word welfare comes from the word shalom, which is a huge word. My friend Dan Brown could probably have a, a, a doctoral thesis all on this single word shalom. It is such a beautiful and powerful word that has so much meaning behind it. And I'm going to butcher it and simplify it to say this word means flourishing. What Jeremiah is saying is, is listen, people of God, you might not like where you are. This might not be what you had planned for your life. But God is saying, listen, seek the flourishing of those around you. Go and give yourself away and, and serve. Because when you do that, listen, you're going to reap the benefit of that flourishing as well. And I think, it's so, I think it's so unique where the people of God, they're in Babylon. These are the people that are their captors. And yet Jeremiah and God say, I want you to seek their flourishing. I want you to make their life better. So here's what it comes down to. When we're in that season of exile, when we're suffering, you can get bitter or you can get better. You can either be paralyzed or you can be propelled by the circumstances of life. Number one, in exile, You've got to believe that God is in control. Number two, you've got to bloom where you're planted. Number three, you've got to recognize that God is working things out for your good. Again, I put myself in that situation. You're struggling, you're suffering, you're in exile, and it feels like, it feels like, God, you must be so angry with me. You must be raging against me, or maybe you've forgotten about me. Maybe you don't love me because I'm struggling through all this. God, it feels like you're just allowing me to be crushed. But again, look at the hope from Jeremiah. He says in verse 8, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let the prophets and the diviners deceive you. Don't listen to the dreams they dream. It's a lie that they prophesy in my name, and I did not send them. Thus says the Lord of hosts, when 70 years are complete in Babylon, I'll come and I'll fulfill my promise to you and bring you back to this place. How long is their exile going to be? 70 years. That's a long time. But look what he says next, verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. You will call upon me and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. See, in the midst of this darkness, in the midst of gloom, of suffering, God offers them a glimmer of hope, a little bit of light, light peeking through the darkness. God says, this exile is going to be a long time. It's going to be 70 years, but I want you to know I have not forsaken you. I want you to know I have not stopped loving you. You might not have been faithful to me, but I'm going to remain faithful to you even in exile. See, whatever circumstance you find yourself, whatever it might be, God's plans are not for evil. 
God's plans for us are not to crush us. They're not meant to be cruel. They're not out of spite. They're not out of, of anger. His plans for us, no matter what circumstance we're in, are plans for good, to give us a hope and a future. That God is, is working through whatever difficulty we're facing for his purpose, for plans for our good. Reminds me of, reminds me of, uh, Coca-Cola. Can you picture the Coca-Cola ad, you know, where you've got the polar bears? And polar bears, naturally, they drink Coca-Cola out of a bottle, right? Can you picture it? I love those commercials. Uh, Those polar bears, they drink Coca-Cola out of a glass bottle, right? You see, in our world today, we like the convenience of cans and plastic bottles. But polar bears, they like the glass bottles, if you remember why, because you can take those glass bottles and you take them back to the store. And those glass bottles, if they're in good condition, what happens? They give you a few cents back, and then they clean those bottles, and those bottles get reused again and again and again. Because those bottles become so strong to be able to withstand that. See, when those bottles are first made, and they're, they're beginning to give those bottles the, the Coca-Cola shape, Those bottles are extremely weak. You put any pressure on those bottles and they will shatter like no other, which is really bad for the polar bear population if they shattered like that. Those bottles, they have to be cured. They have to be put through uh, uh, heat at extremely high temperature. And it's through that baking process that those bottles can become strong enough to withstand the cold from the polar bear's And the heat from the Yakima sunshine, it's through that process that they become strong enough to withstand whatever it faces without shattering. You see, when we go through hard stuff, suffering, consequences, hardship, whatever it is, listen, you've got to know. You've got to know that God is at work. He's not. He's not giving you something for your evil to, to destroy you, to crush you. God is at, at work for you, for your good, and for your future. And you might not be able to, to grasp it. But just about every season of growth doesn't come from when times are happy and easy. They come from difficulty. That's where we get stronger. That's where we grow. That's where we grow deep roots. It's through the difficulty And you've got to understand whatever difficulty you're facing, whatever hardship. Listen, God is still present in that. God has a purpose and a plan. We might not know it. We might not feel it. But we've got to know it and believe it. In fact, as I think about this passage, again, we we like this passage because it makes us feel like, oh, God just wants to make everything good for me. No, this passage is written to people suffering who still have a long time of suffering in front of them, 70 years in exile. And the summary of this is no matter what difficulty or circumstance you are in, God is at work for you, for your good, and for your future. This morning, whatever situation you find yourself in, whatever hardship, disappointment, suffering, uncertain future, Listen, I don't have 
three steps to make life better for you. I have a simple encouragement this morning is you just got to choose to believe. To choose to believe again and again and again. God, I don't understand it, but I'm choosing to believe that you're in control. I'm choosing to believe that you're working things out. God has brought you wherever you are. Choosing to believe that God is at work in whatever situation. Choosing to believe that even when we don't see it, we know that God is there. Choosing to believe that God will use you in whatever situation he's planted. Now, I'll be a little honest with me. I've kind of been a little funk the last couple of weeks. A funk that I just can't seem to get out of. You know, it's in those funks, sometimes it's hard for us to see. God, I don't see it. I'm in this funk, God. I don't see how you're working. I don't feel you working, God. God, I don't see it and I don't feel it. I feel alone. It reminds me of Greenland. I've never been there, but I've seen pictures. See, in Greenland, it's a land of icebergs, big ones and small ones. And what happens is if you look at those icebergs, what happens is the wind is battering them and pushing them. But oftentimes, those icebergs are moving in the opposite direction of the wind. Like, how does that work? See, those surface winds, they drive sometimes those little icebergs for a little while. That's obvious for us to see, those, the wind pushing those icebergs. But the large icebergs, the big ones, the ones that have the polar bears with Coke bottles on top of them, <laughs> unbeknownst to the casual observer, they're going against the wind because they're carried along by these deep ocean currents. Beneath the surface, things that we can't see, there's these ocean currents that are pushing those icebergs along. See, our life is like that. We've got these two forces at work. We've got the surface winds that sometimes are unpredictable, that are often distressing. These surface winds that we worry about and we struggle with and we fear and they're pushing us and battering us and we're like, man, I can't handle this. But at the same time, beneath the surface where we can't see, there's those force of those ocean currents that are much more powerful. Things that are often unseen that are responsible for the direction of our lives. See, we can't see those ocean currents. But in your life right now, we gotta believe. We've gotta have faith. We've gotta trust. Sometimes we gotta do this on a daily basis. An hour by hour basis. Got to believe that God is at work. Got to believe that God is present. We may not understand it. We might not know why. We've got to believe what Jeremiah is teaching us. That God is in control of whatever situation we find ourselves in. That God has a purpose and a plan behind it. Isn't this kind of the story of the entire Bible? Where we look and we're looking, we're saying, we don't see it. We don't, we don't feel it. But then God flips the story upside down and brings this great story out of it. 
Think about the lonely hill called Golgotha. You've got those brokenhearted disciples who are brokenhearted. They believe Jesus was their Savior. And then they watch him die on the cross. And they're like, the story's over. This is it. We're done. It's finished. There's nothing left. But that wasn't the end, was it? God was still at work even in the darkest situation, raising Jesus from the dead, conquering sin and Satan and the curse of death and hell. God was at work through that dark moment. God is at work through that horrible circumstance. And this is where for us, whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, we've got to believe God is in control. God has a purpose. We may not recognize it. We may not understand it. We may not understand it for a very long time. But this is my challenge to you, is that you would believe anyways. You would believe the words of Scripture. That God is sovereign and God is in control. That God is working things out for your good and for your future. You might not see it, you might not know it, you might not feel it, but we still got to believe it. Because it's through that. It's through that belief that God is in control. It's through that belief that God is working things out that gives us the ability to bloom where we're planted, gives us the ability to seek the shalom of our city, to bring flourishing and blessing and peace all around us, to be people that even though circumstances are difficult, we can still have a faith and a hope that people say, how can you have so much courage and joy when all of this is going on? Well, let me tell you how. Because my God is at work in me, and I know it. And he is working things out for my good and for my future.